Awesome. Oh, good morning. Oh, what a, what a large sea of red that I see. It is, this is an integral formation issue for you, isn't it? You really care a lot about football. Yeah, gosh. Well, I hope you have a marvelous day and you win all the things that you want to win in this game. And I hope it re- I really do mean it. I hope it's a really good day for you. It's a, what, what a profound honor to get to be with you uh, this morning. Dan, what kind words for you to speak uh, over, over me uh, and to get to be here. It just so happened that I was uh, in Wichita over the course of the last couple, de- couple days uh, at a conference and I was invited to come and share. Um, and then I, I'm really jazzed, actually. This is going to be a three-minute sermon because I can't wait to go home. Um, <clears throat> I'm just kidding. My flight's not till four, but at the end of the day, um, I have this morning to be with you. And I want to I actually invite you into what I think is, is a wildly, wildly important conversation. Um, th- this morning, actually, if you have a copy of the Bible, which you may, you may or may not, that's fine, but if you would find your way to Psalm 73, in a few moments, I'm going to have the psalm put up uh, on the screen, and we're going we're gonna to take some time and ask a big question today. <clears throat> there are... Um, when when you read the stories of Jesus, um, there you will have noticed this. Uh, you'll notice that when Jesus is interacting with people, um, people ask him a lot of questions. A lot of a lot of questions. Um, in in fact, the numbers are really interesting around the questions that Jesus was asked. Um, there, there was this little book written by. Uh, a, a guy who uh, taught at uh, the London School of Theology, he actually still teaches there. He's a New Testament scholar by the name of Conrad Gempf. He wrote, a, he wrote a little book called Jesus Asked. And it's a question, it's a book about all the questions of the Bible. And it, it turns out when you look at all the stories of Jesus, right, you look at all the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus in total is asked 183 different questions. That's a lot of questions. Uh, I've got a teenage son. I, I, I think Jesus understands my plight. <laughs> he knows what it's like to be asked a lot of questions. 183. Gempf, in his study on the story of Jesus, um, makes a really interesting observation that when you look at all 183 questions, all 183 questions, of all the questions he's asked, <laughs> Jesus only answers two of them. Uh, and, that, and that actually, more often than not, Jesus pulls a Jesus and asks a question back. And there's a reason why. It is really hard to give a good answer to a bad question. And for Jesus, many, many people came to Jesus, but their question was not honest. It was not integrous. They didn't come because they actually wanted to know. They came because often they wanted to trap him. And in many cases, they wanted to lead him to the cross. And so when you look at the life of Jesus, a lot of the questions that he's asked are actually ill-formed questions. They're not good questions. And so our task today is I want to ask what I think is maybe one of the most important questions that you may ever ask in your entire life. And that is, I wanna ask, is God actually listening? Is God actually listening to you? Does he hear you? Does he pay attention to you? 
Um, in order to answer that question, I, I want to read a psalm in just a moment, but I think it's actually important today that I tell you a little bit about my story. You don't know me. I don't know you quite yet, but I think my story actually is going to be a great lead-in. Um, I was not raised, um, little old me was not raised in a Christian home. In fact, I was raised in a very uh, kind of secular, progressive household uh, out in uh, the great state of Oregon. You know us between Washington uh, and California. They call us the left coast for a reason. <laughs> very, very kind of the, the part of the country that I live in is consistently considered by many people to be kind of the most godless part of America. That's not a term that I use, but Oregon is one of the least churchy places in, in, the, in the United States. I was raised in a kind of this um, um, non-churchy, uh, kind of secular, progressive uh, household. And when I was 16 years old, my, my parents had gone through a pretty wild divorce when I was about 10 years old, 11 years old. And at 16 years old, uh, not you know, being, being a person of faith, uh, being a Christian, um, and really actually, to be candid with you, between the ages of 11 and 16 going through uh, what can only amount to be a, a massive um, internal existential crisis. I went through, uh, I was a lonely kid, didn't have many friends, I'm an only child. My parents had just gone through a divorce, uh, went through a sexual identity crisis. I didn't know up from down. Uh, just this sense of like um, loneliness, sadness, and I frankly just didn't even know if I was loved. Um, I was 16 years old, and I was sitting in, of all places, I was sitting in my sophomore year geometry math class in high school, Mr. Arndt, and the two girls behind me, out of nowhere, I overheard them arguing about when Jesus is coming back. They had been reading these books called the Left Behind series. Back in the late 1900s, you may remember that. And I don't, I really can't begin to tell you what happened. I mean, it was a very supernatural weird experience, but something about that conversation awakened my heart for God. I don't know why. I don't have, it was supernatural. I had uh, this, I went home. Uh, and I had this Bible. My dad uh, had given me his Bible. My dad's a Buddhist. He's not a Christian. He had given me his Bible. And I remember sitting in my bedroom on a beanbag chair. <laughs> and I did this thing. It was, I was sitting on this beanbag chair. And I said to God, I did this thing. A lot of people do this, by the way. I said, I didn't know where to read in the Bible. I didn't know what section to start with. Nobody had taught me. We didn't have Bible Project videos back then. I didn't know where to start. And so I sat down and I said, God, I'm going to open this. Just speak to me. And for the next three hours, I completely uh, read the book of Leviticus. <laughs> and was thoroughly creeped out. Um, by just about everything I read. I mean, the blood, the guts, the, you know, the priesthood, the tabernacle space, it made no sense to me. And I was like, what? I remember closing it up. And I, and I said, I am giving you one more shot. 
and I opened up as far right as I could go. <laughs> and I opened up to the story of Jesus in Matthew's gospel um, saying to Matthew the tax collector, come and follow me. And I had this, I don't know how to explain it, but I had in my beanbag chair, I experienced the resurrected Jesus. Um, I became uh, very quickly, something happened in that beanbag chair, I don't know what, other than I know that God was meeting me. I started going to church. Uh, I began, you know, I, I had to kind of think through some things in my life. I had some areas of my life that were, uh, that were not formed, that were, had not been ironed out naturally, and Jesus was immediately getting into that stuff in my life. I started going to church, and here I stand before you today having had following Jesus for the last 30 years of my life. And, and, yeah. I had no idea at the time how much Jesus would ruin my life. <laughs> and I, I don't, I, friends, I do not say that callously or I'm not being coy. I'm literally saying that when you follow Jesus, um, it is not an improved dead life. It's actually the end of your old life. And you get a, it's a whole new existence. And I'm going to be the first to say, it is a lot easier to not follow somebody who says you have to love your enemies. It is a lot easier to not have a God that invites you to generosity. It is a lot easier to not have to follow a God who invites you to constantly forgive. When you follow Jesus, you are immersing yourself in a story that is going to ruin your dead life, but it's going to give you a whole new life. One of the things that's gonna happen for you is there's going to be a season in your journey with Jesus in which you're gonna to begin to ask a bunch of questions about God. I would say it's actually one of the most sacred parts of following Jesus. And that is to say, when you first start following Jesus, it's almost a little bit like a honeymoon stage where it's just all fun all the time. But let's all be honest, the honeymoon stage lasts about two weeks. And then, all of a sudden, you have to start actually talking to each other and relating to each other and navigating challenges together. Um, some scholars call this, in many respects, they call it a wall. It's this, it's this moment where you go from infatuation and attraction and it's just all excitement to these moments of walking with God when it's hard and it's difficult and it's challenging and all the things you don't wanna have to deal with, Jesus is all of a sudden getting into and he's asking you to repent and turn from your sin and go into the deeper things of God. One of the most critical questions you're gonna ask is how does God listen to me? That, that's actually how, how we get to the psalm we're at today. Uh, psalm 73, let, let me, if, if I could, this is actually a pretty lengthy psalm, um, but, but it's, uh, it, it, is, it is just too good for me to sum it up. I need to read the whole thing for you. Psalm 73, we'll have it on the screen. The psalm goes something like this. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, 
My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant and when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They, the wicked, have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are, pl- they are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace and they clothe themselves with violence. From there, calloused hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Lord Almighty know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. But surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I, told to, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely, verse 18, you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? Completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet... I am always with you, God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you take me into your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart, oh, they may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of your deeds. Friends, this is the word of God. Would you say amen with me this morning? Amen, amen. What a profound and honest psalm. I want you to see three things in this this morning. And, and, and as, as we look at these, these little elements of this psalm, I just want you to see how, how the author of this, this little song is inviting you to see how God listens to you. To begin, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice how the author of this psalm is practicing what Christians and Jews all across the world have for time and eternity simply called confession. Notice the confession. Um, Of all the psalms, there's 150, by the way, in the Protestant Bible. Uh, of, Of the psalms, there are 11 of these psalms are attributed to a character named Asaph. Um, What do we know about this character, Asaph? 11 of these psalms written by Asaph. What do we know about him? First of all, we know that Asaph was a singer. He was a prominent Levitical singer. What that means is he was a worship leader. And he works in David's court. 
Uh, he would have been an ancestor of uh, the tribe of the sons of Asaph, one of the greatest guilds of temple musicians that we know in the ancient uh, Israelite community. That is to say that he comes from a family of people that sing. He's a worship leader. And this Psalm 73, this is one of his worship songs. And I get it. Can you for a moment, did you notice some of the language here where he's like, the wicked have no struggles. They scoff, they speak with malice. You place them on slippery ground. Think about this song. Could you imagine for a moment if our worship music sounded like that? How wild it would be? I mean, our worship, our worship would be so, I mean, you come to, you'd come to church and you'd be like, are we like cursing people in our songs now? Is that what we're doing is just cursing the wicked in our worship? It, I mean, you finish this psalm. Honestly, when I read this psalm, my first response is, well, why don't you tell us what you really think, Asaph? What's really going on here? Because it feels like you're reading somebody's unvarnished journal. It's a little bit like, you know, uh, I've had this happen only one time to me. My mic, by the way, the people that do the sound are doing a great job. But I've noticed something about the mic. There's been a moment, a couple moments, one or two moments, when I get off the stage when I'm done preaching and the the mic guy forgets to to turn my my mic off and I lean over to say something to the pastor and, and, and everybody hears it. It's a hot mic moment. And luckily, I've never said anything that, you know, is tr- tremendously traumatic or painful for the congregation. But I've had some hot mic moments. It's terrifying. This, this is why preachers, when they go to the restroom, they take their pack off. <laughs> because I've known friends who had really unfortunate hot mic moments. Really unfortunate hot mic moments. You read this psalm. You know what it feels like to me? It feels like a worship song built off of a bunch of hot mic moments is the author, I mean, it's just so profoundly honest and truthful. I want you to see two things about this worship. I want you to observe, first of all, I want you to observe how profoundly honest this author is with God. I mean, they they are just laying it out before God. Everything that they're feeling Everything, their emotion. It's weird to me. I'm not, this is a, by the way, I gotta tell you, I've I've been in a lot of rooms. Your worship team knows how to dance. (laughs) Live into your privilege as a church, folks. Next time I come, I better be seeing more dancing in the room. (laughs) Kansas City should know how to dance because you got people up here that are teaching you to know how to dance, Okay. But I gotta be honest, when I listen to some of our worship in American Christianity, I, I'm not being judgmental, I'm just making an observation. It's weird to me how much of our worship isn't actually about God, it's about ourselves. Worship that almost sounds like this, God, I'm awesome, and I love you, and I'll never leave you, or forsake you. And I gotta say, that is like, that is like literally what Peter told Jesus before he denied him three times. I, Jesus, I would never turn my back on you. And Jesus is like, no, you, you will. And actually, I'm gonna send a bird that's gonna like caw at you three times to prove it, bucko. 
I got much of our, too much of our worship is about us. When worship, friends, worship is not you and I offering our greatness to God. Worship is finding God in the midst of our lives and finding God. Worship is about God. Worship is not our self-triumphalistic sense of, I'm going to do it for you, Jesus. I pull my bootstraps up for you, Jesus. No, 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 no. Worship is broken sinners who find God's merciful grace in the middle of their darkness. I want you to see how this worship embodies radical honesty about our own pain and God's awesomeness. And I secondly, I just want you to notice, this made it into the Bible. But, and I, I'm one of those people that thinks like the whole Bible is like inspired by God and that like every jot and tittle is very intentional and included for a reason. This is in the Bible. It is in the Bible, which means that one of our inspired writings in the Bible actually invites you and I to bring our authentic difficulties to God. Yeah. Friends, this, this is, this, this, this is, I, I can't express to you how liberating it is that we are invited to do this. You know, um, let me introduce you to a concept of what we call confession. And the idea of confession, sadly for most of us, that maybe we're raised Catholic or raised in Catholic environments, is our immediate thought about confession is we think we're supposed to go into this dark room and, and there's somebody we can't see and then we speak through this wall and then they give us some homework and then we're forgiven or something like that. And we imagine confession, we imagine confession as only something we do with a priest. When in reality, confession in the Bible is so much more dynamic than this. I'm not limiting the importance of human to human confession, but one of the most important things we do in the Bible is that we confess to God. The, the word, actually, the, the word, it's interesting, the word for confession uh, in the New Testament uh, that's utilized in the New Testament, it's one of the most dynamic New Testament words. Homologeo, it's a compound word between hama, which means, uh, it means one, legeo, which means to say. It literally means to agree with somebody. And, and the idea here is that when you confess to God anything, when you tell God what is, which by the way, I would define confession as this, telling God what is true. When you name before God what is really going on in your heart, when you're mad, when you're angry, when you're frustrated, when you tell God this, you are actually, this is mind-blowing, you are actually telling God something he already knows. This is so mind-blowing because confession is not coming into the throne room of God and letting God in on a secret. You have never, ever, Ever. Friends, there has never been a moment, let me put it this way, you, hopefully this sticks with you, there has never been a moment in human history when somebody has prayed to God and God walked away more informed. <laughs> he has never listened to you and walked away and been like, well, I, yeah, I've never thought of it from that perspective. 
that is a compelling argument as you approach the ontological eternity that is me. (laughs) Jesus himself says that when you talk to God, he knows what you're asking before you ask. You're not telling God anything he doesn't know. All you're doing is inviting God into what he does know. It is what every parent does with their kid who knows that they stole the cookie. God, a parent never comes to the kid and says, did you steal the cookie? You know they stole the cookie. What are you doing when you say, did you steal the cookie? You're not looking for info. You're looking for restored relationship. When God comes to the man and the woman who are hiding in the trees in Genesis 3, they've run away because of their sin. What are the first words out of God's mouth? He said, what have you done? Did God not know what they did? God knew. God was intimately aware of what they've done. What is God doing? He is inviting confession. When you talk to God, you are not shocking God. You don't ever inform God. There has never been a moment that God has walked away more wiser because of your conversation. And what's so awesome about this is confession is talking about God, talking with God about something he already knows. It's liberating. One one of the... um, I'm a, I'm a dad of an awesome kid. I can't, I'm flying home today. I can't wait to see that little guy. I'm taking him to breakfast tomorrow morning because I'm the dad of the year. <laughs> One of the greatest decisions I made during COVID was uh, I bought a hot tub. Yeah. yeah. Just sense the Lord moving over here somewhere. Uh, I bought a hot tub, and I did it for one reason. When you were a kid during COVID, it was really hard because you were separated from your friends. You couldn't go to school. I mean, it was just, it was hell on earth for kids. It was so hard. It was hard for all of us. But I noticed that during COVID, my son had a bunch of questions for God. And I needed to have a space every night where he could come and just say what he was actually thinking. And you know what I found as a dad is that when I as a father can receive his hard questions and he is not judged for them, he comes to me more and more and more. Friends, your God is always in the hot tub and he is always ready to listen. That thing in your heart where you go like, God, um, I do not fully understand how to think through X, Y, and Z. I don't know what to do with my kids that are living their lives on TikTok and all the things they're thinking now. I don't know, God, how to get over this addiction in my life. You know those sorts of things that we have? I would say let that be the place where you meet God in prayer. God is inviting you into it. Don't run away from it. Find God in the middle of that. So I want you to see just from this psalm, number one, does God listen to us? Well, we have 
a rich tradition in the Bible, a rich tradition of people who have learned how to truly confess what is authentically going on in your hearts. Invite God into what he already knows. Second, I want you to notice that the author of this psalm does not end with confession. Confession is an important part of it, but it's not the end of this psalm. In fact, the end of this psalm ends in praise. The end of this psalm ends in praise. But, but it kind of takes a while to get there. It takes a little while to get there. Uh, you will notice. Did you notice when I was reading the psalm? Did you feel a little uncomfortable? You're like, wow, I've never heard this kind of language read in church before. Am I allowed to say that sort of stuff? In fact, th- this is a, a, a psalm that is a part of the Psalter, so part of the Psalms, uh, that we simply call the imprecatory psalms. An imprecatory psalm is this. There's all different kinds of psalms. There's psalms of praise. There's psalms of thanksgiving. There's psalm- psalms of recompense. There's psalms of forgiveness. There's all these different psalms. One of my favorite kinds of psalms in the psalms, one of my favorite kinds of psalm is called an imprecatory psalm. And you know what it is? It is literally, scholars call it a psalm of rage. Where you just, I mean, you've read them before. Have you ever been reading the psalm and, and all of a sudden the author goes like, but God, would you just punch out the teach, teeth of my enemies? Have you read this sort of stuff? And you're like, how in the world am I supposed to live this one out? I'm not teaching this in Sunday school. What do I do with these psalms? You heard it in this psalm. God, the wicked are before you. Would you, would you God, would you put them in their place? I mean, this language of anger and rage. And friends, for some of us, for some of us, for some of us, we have been taught that there is no place for anger in the Christian life. And we have been told that if you experience anger, that you are sinning. And I need to be very clear with you. I'm flying out today, so if you don't like this, I'm sorry. Part of being a follower of Jesus is at times allowing your anger to be the place where you meet God. Anger in itself, Paul puts it this way. He says, in your anger, do not sin. But he never says, do not be angry. He says, when you're angry, don't sin. But he doesn't say, be angry. Jesus himself walks into the temple, flips tables over in anger at the injustice going on in the temple. Jesus experiences anger. Anger and rage are something the Psalter wants us to bring to God. But notice my language. We need to bring it to God. In in fact, when you look at this, this language, this is not the Bible inviting you and I to violence. This is not the Bible uh, in in any way, shape, or form endorsing you going out and doing something horrible to people you don't like. Actually, interestingly enough, there is no evidence that the author who wrote this psalm actually went out and beat somebody up. And that is to say that their anger was taken to God, not to people. Here's why this is important. Friends, if we do not have a place to take our anger, we will eventually take it to people. Um, One of my favorite scholars uh, named Ellen Davis, she teaches at Duke University. She says, when you look at the imprecatory Psalms, they are the first amendment of the Bible. They are our free speech before the living God. And here's why this is critical. If you don't take your anger to God, then you will likely make other people feel your anger. 
Words are not violence, folks. It is critical that you and I have a place to take our anger to God. And it's shocking to me that part of praise is bringing your anger to God. Now, by the time this psalm ends, something, is in, something changes. Because by the time this psalm ends, yes, the author, Asaph, is going through his anger. He's telling God, I'm mad. All, all of the wicked, their bodies are great. Their jobs are awesome. Their 401ks are killing it. Everybody else is doing great but me. They just lay it out before God. But did you notice at the very end of the psalm, he says, but as for me, it's good to be near you, God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Uh, scholars actually have a word for this. Um, you'll notice in the Psalms that often the author will just like lay it out before God, but then they'll be like, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? God, are you? But then the last line will be, but we praise you, God. You're sovereign Lord. We have a word for this. Um, it's, called in, it's called anticipatory praise. And what it means is this. It is the Bible's way of saying that we do not praise God after everything works out, we praise God before it works out. That in the middle of our difficulty, even in the middle of our anger, even in the middle of the divorce, even in the middle of our child running away, even in the middle of our addiction, we don't wait for everything to be fizzled out and ironed out to love God. We actually learn to love God in it because folks, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't get to walk around it. And when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in the middle of the darkest part of that valley, you cry out to God and you say, yet God, you are good to me. It's interesting, when you go, go read Psalm 22, there are three times in the Psalm where the author, David, makes all these comments. He's like, God, I'm a worm, I'm a nobody, yet you are God. God, I, I, I don't, everybody's against me, the Amalekites want to kill me, the cows of Bashan are eating my food, yet you are worthy of all my praise. It is the great nevertheless, the great yet. Part of living a healthy relationship with God is giving him your praise in the darkness. And you know what we see? Is that God is moved by that kind of praise. He sees it. He hears it. As a dad, one of my favorite things about being a dad is I love it when my son cries out for help. You know, early on in life, you're, you're kind of a cop. And then, and then eventually you become a coach. And soon, sooner than not, you become a consultant. And you're lucky if they invite you in. There's nothing more sacred as a dad than having my son cry out for help. And it moves God's heart in the middle of your darkness when you cry out. God, my life is falling apart Work is not going well. Things are just crumbling at the surface. Yet, you are good. How are we doing? How are we doing? Yeah. You with me?
The third thing I want you to see um, in this psalm is that there comes a moment in this psalm when the author turns from their problems and they see God. Uh, they call it, actually, scholars who study Psalm 73 call it the sanctuary experience. He is in the middle of his struggle and he sees in this difficulty, he sees the sanctuary. He actually enters the sanctuary of God. He enters, it's after the third Shirley. Uh, he, he says he, he has turned and now he sees God in his sanctuary. He sees God in his place, his throne room. And that is to say that in the middle of his difficulty, he has now found a way to have a God-centered experience. God is with him even in his most travailing moment in life. You know, um, one, of my, one, of my favorite, um, one of my favorite parts of the, the storyline of the Bible, it really is one of the most compelling elements of scripture to me, uh, is this portion of the Old Testament. You, it's in the wisdom literature. It's called um, uh, the book of Job. It's called the book of Job. And it's the story of a man who literally loses everything. He loses his family. He loses his job. He loses his reputation. None of his football teams do well. Um, he is, it's a very Job-like experience for, yeah. So he loses all of it. He loses everything. And Job naturally gets angry at his plight. And so what does Job do? He begins to write some questions for God. And so he has these questions he wants to take to God. Like, God, why would you let this happen? God, I've been righteous and good. Why have you let this happen? God, he has these, he, he basically has a speech he wants to deliver before the Lord. And so for chapters, nearly 20 chapters, Job fleshes out, fleshes out these questions. Um, that experience, by the way, of losing everything, that experience of losing everything, it is easy for you and I to think that the experience of losing everything is something that happens to other people. People, in, people who have gone through cancer or people who live in Africa or people who experience profound deep suffering, the Holocaust, to think about the Job experience as other people. When in reality, George Whitfield used to say this, in in reality, the Job experience actually at the end of the day is an experience we will all have in death. That there will come a moment when we will give everything we have away. That we will give it all away. We will lose it all in death. We will give it all away. You know, um, that meaning there's going to come a point in my life when I'm older, I'm going to die and my son is going to get everything I've got. Um, in, in a way, you could put it this way. I know you value generosity here. I like to put it this way. We are all generous eventually. Okay. You, you will get there um, sometime. Job loses everything. And he has a speech for God. And he comes before God. In Job 37, 38, and those core chapters in, Gen in the book of Job. And he comes to God. It's absolutely fascinating. When Job actually gets in front of God, guess what? <laughs> Not one question comes out of Job's mouth. In fact, when he comes before God, catch this, when he comes before God, Job doesn't ask any questions. God asks Job a bunch of questions. Hey, oh, so Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, were you there when I invented the Leviathan and the great sea creatures? Job, were you there when I invented the, subset, the sunset? 
And of course, the answer is no, Job wasn't there. And so God is asking him a bunch of questions. And you know what you learn about the book of Job? It's this, that the book of Job is not about a God who gives answers to people who are suffering. Job has no answers for people who are suffering. It is not an existential explanation of what we do with suffering. Here is the good news of Job, folks. Job is not about a God who gives you answers. Job is a book about a God who gives you himself. I don't know about you, I would much rather have God than all the answers. Because at the end of the day, I can actually have all the answers, but then I no longer need God. God doesn't give Job the answers. He gives them himself. He gives him his his presence. Job, I'm with you in your pain. I am present with you in your loss. You are not alone as much as it may feel like you are, brother. I am with you. My friend Sky Jatani says that the most important word in the entire Bible is the word with. Emmanuel is God with. By the time Job finishes, by the way, by the time Job finishes, everything at the end of Job ends gloriously. Job actually receives everything back times two. And he has three daughters at the end of his life. Can I read to you the names of his three daughters? He names them at the end of his life. He gets them back and he names them. These are the names he gives to his daughters. He calls one Jemima, one Keziah, and one Karen Hapuk. And let me translate these for you. Jemima means dove. Keziah means cinnamon. Karen Hapuk means eyeshadow. Friends, these are names of glory and beauty. He is looking at his daughters and he is blessing them. In fact, notice, go read the last chapter in Job. What does Job give his daughters? He gives them all an inheritance. Who do not get the inheritance in the ancient world? Women. Men always get them. Who gets the inheritance in Job? The ladies. Friends, there is a reason why. For people who have the ability to see the sanctuary in the middle of their pain, they always come out the other side blessing everyone around them. When Jesus comes out of the tomb, do you notice that he doesn't go around with revenge? Oh, you were the one that turned your back on me. What does he call Peter? He calls him friend. I just want you to see that friends, resurrection is God's form of revenge. We don't use guns, we don't use violence. We come back with love. This morning, I started with a question. Does God really listen to us? And I want you to know, church, there is nobody that listens better than your God. He is with you. And he is enamored with you. Would you stand with me?
Let's pray. Gracious King, Lord Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, We um, have been invited today through this psalm uh, to reflect on the power of a God who is with us and listens to us. And God, as we have listened to Asaph cry out to you, God, we find ourselves in this story and we find ourselves needing to be able to truly confess praise, but also see you in the midst of the darkness. Would we be like Job, who in the midst of tremendous loss, find our blessing and give it away at the end? Would your kingdom come in Kansas City as it is in heaven? Thank you for this community of people that are seeking to love you. Would you, Holy Spirit, come and lead this church? And would your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus, your king, and we love you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Church, would you say amen?